to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. So I just had a thought when we were talking about what we should talk about in the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And it was... Probably it was just me having had a bad week. I don't know. But I thought, does anybody, anybody still care about workplace well-being? Aren't we over it by now? And it really felt like everybody had moved on to sexier, more pressing concerns for workplace Um uh, wellness, if you like, yep, like other, other topics <laughs> that are just more important than true mental health and well-being of the employees. There's other concerns. They're not even concerned about DEI anymore, particularly. No, not I. Yeah, that's fallen off the trend as well. So I thought we should talk about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and to 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 just have a conversation about whether or not we think people do care and if not why not and if so why what do you reckon yeah I think on the surface right people still care I think generally people care about themselves they care about family they care about friends so on that macro level they do care right um, I think when it comes to organization and they think, well, it's been 2020 when the thing really kicked off. Obviously, we, me and you have been doing this since 2017 because before it was all sexy. But, exactly. But the point was, well-being was always an issue then. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been sick. You wouldn't have needed support. You wouldn't have been out of a business. So clearly, it was always needed and it won't go away on that, on the basis that people will continue to people right and the world we live in right now has a lot of stressful triggers the two wars on the go right now we are in um financial crisis in that country even though we keep hovering where we're not in um what know that term again when the country yeah we're not like i think we entered it in december but nobody's talking about that because i think there was a lot of um the economy didn't recover in December. So I think it fell off and then went back again. I'm not sure. I'm not an economist. Mm. But there's something that says these are life struggles. These are issues that the average worker, the average person is still going to have to deal with. So when you say, do we still care about well-being? Yes. Do we still care about workplace well-being? And that's a slightly different matter. Because yeah, who and that's what I mean. Workplace well-being in this and this um perspective, but in terms of workplace well-being, we know it's falling off the trend. So when we talk about top trends for the next couple of years or three years, well-being was high on the agenda. DEI was high on the agenda. It's not on there now, technically. Um, it's still important, but it's just not something that um we're encouraging people to 
I suppose, discuss in the public arena now. So we're uh, talking about things like AI, AI, AI is now in the, okay, how are we going to maneuver, how are we going to integrate it, will it take our jobs? There's all these <laughs> concerns about it. So there's AI, then there's things like skills for growth. What skills are no longer going to be relevant in the next five years and which one will be? And how do you retrain those people? AK, if AI takes it over, what would that look like? Then there's something like, you know, workplace management, for example, which is always important. How are you going to manage the workforce? How are you going to manage new generations coming through? So you can see none of those things, maybe except for the AI, there's still a well-being element underneath them, in my opinion. So that might be the trend, but it doesn't remove the priorities from HR, at least HR priorities perspective, around things like employee training. They still have to do those. Talent acquisition, you're still going to have to find them. You're still going to have to obscure them if you haven't got the skills. And employee retention, you're still going to have to want to keep them. So is there any of those three things, for example, that will not have well-being or productivity running underneath it? Of course not. So there but is... To me, this question about do we still care about workplace well-being, the reason I'm asking that is because... If we do care, then we prioritize it. If we prioritize, then we spend to take care of it. And I'm still not seeing enough companies investing um, in the right kind of solutions. And I feel that is the reason why people are frankly bored about it. There's, I, 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 I did feel there was a danger that all this talk about mental health at work and it's okay not to be okay and reach out and all of that which is frankly is is true and it, it is important and needs to be discussed but because of the intensity of which it was discussed because of the fact that it seemed to be the sole primary focus of anybody for the whole of 2020 and 2021 um I was worried that we would get overwhelmed and then frankly bored humans aren't designed for long periods of attention on the same topic and that's I think what's happened is it's become even I find the word well-being to be meaningless now it's an overused word what Um, what does it really mean now we are professionals we know what it really means but it's everything if you can have a well-being notepad journal cup of tea coffee or uh, i don't know anything a well-being blanket well-being shopping trip it doesn't mean anything now it it just means things that make you feel good and that's not actually what well-being is so so i think we've almost overuse has rendered the term meaningless and therefore the big wigs in organizations the ones who are responsible for steering strategic direction are less interested in it it seems to be less sick of hearing it yeah this is also made worse and it's just it's exacerbated by the fact that when when we when we all woke up to the fact that oh we actually need to give us stuff about people whether or not it, it it's anything to do with their job or the work that is causing their concern we need to care 
we need to show we care. We need to be seen to be doing something, right? When they woke up to this, yeah. the response, kind of understandably, there were a lot of things going on, tiny little thing called COVID, was to knee-jerk re- react by investing in something that would be a quick fix, something that would prove that they care, show that they care and allow everybody to just move on. Um, and so a lot of companies, do you remember when we started, Obes? 2017, who the hell was doing workplace wellbeing? Nobody was doing it. We didn't well, even... some people were. We're just doing them in a different type of way, but it wasn't... It, it was nowhere as near large, as popular yeah. as it is now. I can't believe the prolific rise of workplace wellbeing um, suppliers now, solutions, mm. service providers. There are a lot There's of them. so many. There are so yeah, many. Are we many. used to be in the minority, and now I'm like, oh, we're a diamond dozen, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so there have been a lot of people who have started their firms, and I'm not naming names. I don't really mm. know any that I want to call out. That's not what this is about. But there no. have been lots of solutions proffered that are supposed to fix your well-being problem for next to no cost that are quick and easy to roll out that require absolutely no intervention from you as an organization or your employer and will take care of all of your employees woes like EAPs Mm -hmm. but even less effective I'm thinking apps I'm thinking yeah um online learning self-study courses yeah. things that are supposed to look you've got the resources you've got the tools just go and use them and then come back well and raring to go you and I have always said that is not how it works we know it's not how it works anybody who is truly concerned about employee welfare knows that is not how it works not how it works I know you know I and I, told, I can normally, I can, I get the frustration actually, because like you say, we when we first started, there weren't very many, which was also frustrating because like, why aren't people talking about it? It's serious stuff. Mm. And like at the time, obviously the stats for clinical support were riding, so we kind of knew it, GPs knew it, um, but it was like, what we're going to do with it? But all of a sudden, we have organisations like House helping, uh, helping organisations and workplaces to put things in place so that it's not adding to this number mm. right but I think two things for me one I think one of the things that made it that makes it harder is well-being is such an individual thing if you think about it it's it, I'm going to provide well-being support for all 3,000 of 3,000 of my employees and they will all potentially need something different because it's so individual and it's how people react to stress, how they react to traumas. They're all so different, similar but different, that what the solution that we need will be might be different. So who can supply all of that? So I think that with the right, yes, well-being is around 2020 road. People got the started scrambling um, and then people got panicked and then and, and providers the more of them like you say started to come through then it caused confusion who can supply what who can do what and everybody's claiming to be able to solve this problem with oh just the touch of a button that doesn't ever work mm. oh you can do that with one well-being workshop 
that does never work. If that's the case, your GP will give you one tablet of antidepressant and that's the end of it. Mm. It does no other situation work like that. So I do understand from the HR leader, senior leader perspective, this is too confusing. It is too noisy exactly. out there. And if I don't understand something or it's too loud, I'm just going to want to retreat to the corner and wait for things to quiet down because I can't make a decision. And that's with everybody. Mm-hmm. You can't make a decision if you're like, everybody's trying to sell you something, pitch you something, and they all seem to be sound the same. It's one saying there's something doing something different here. So you just think, I'll just stick to the well-being. I'll just think of the 90 minute, please. Because it's yeah. easy to make and it's that low decision. risk. So it's a low risk. You don't have to put all your eggs in one basket and you spread it around. So that is the key two key points. It's too individualist for an organization to do that. When it's you as a personal person, you know what you need. You go out to find your therapist, you go out to find your GP, you go out to find your gynecologist, you do all and that related to you. What's a gynecologist got to do with mental well being? Well, because, yeah, it's still women's health. It's health, isn't it? Okay. Whatever you've got to do, is that, exactly. A man would not need that service. So we'll talk about well-being, right? Complete state of physical, mental, social, right? Mm-hmm. But in an organization workplace, how is an organization going to now individualize everything? But they cannot. Mm. And they, that's why they need support to help to, to, to structure it. Which is why it needs to be more proactive. But then again, proactive feels like, well, why are we doing all that? Why are we spending all this money if there's no actual harm yet? I'll tell but you But actually, why. the harm is coming. The evidence says, I mean, uh, this is where I get frustrated because I, and I not, I don't blame HR solely because their job is to see the problems and identify solutions but they don't they don't always sign off strategic direction they don't always have budgets that they could spend they don't determine all those things um that's the position of the um senior leadership team the executive board and they have a boss and the boss is the shareholders most frequently and the shareholders is us so i'm blaming all of us yeah all of us yeah right but i know (laughs) It's it's just an all of us, all of us have to care about it. Mm. And there'll be some people who will be tired. And that's okay. The people who are tired need to go for a rest for a bit. And what I mean by who are activists on in this space need to rest. The others will carry on. But it's not (laughs) just that. But you see what I'm trying to get at. We can't all come at it from the same, with the same energy, with the same gut. We can't. So it's not possible. So it's okay that some days I can't do this today. I can't say this one more time and people are not hearing, but it'll be somebody else who just all of a sudden got it and then realizing they're going to run with it and they're going to support their teams better. So mm-hmm. for that, the work will always do well. Now, it reminded me that, God, you mentioned it earlier about the Oxford yeah. research. Yeah. So I That mean, came out, what, end of last year, I think it was. Well, it's to me that, that I read that article. It was in HR magazine for those of you who subscribe. Um, and it came out on the 11th of January this year, the article yeah. that says, here's the headline. No evidence, mindfulness and well-being apps improve employee well-being. I read that and my first thought was, well, duh. Obviously. 
But it's nice to have some research that backs it up. So, like Obi said last year, um, Oxford Uni did a study of 46,000 British workers and found that mindfulness, resilience and stress management and relaxation classes and apps, i.e. what we call the quick fixes, the tick boxes, the, the things that were never designed to fix you, don't improve employee well-being. No. The things that did improve employee well-being are the things that we talk about when we say culture change is at the heart of good employee mental well-being. Culture change are things like scheduling, management practices, resources, performance reviews, job design, all of those things how you structure work to work. That makes such a difference. That is what the University of Oxford, Oxford has identified, right? And what that means is that employers need to be more, I keep saying it, I feel like I just keep repeating myself each each week, more strategic (laughs) in their investment in this area. So I understand that if you had invested in a a really brand spanking new EAP service or brand spanking new app or brand spanking new website, or you can offer this fantastic stuff um, that you'd feel a little bit like you had your fingers burnt when you're not seeing the decrease in your retention um, issues or Uh, or the attrition rates, or the spend that you have to make on recruitment, or the spend that you're making on sickness absence, or or, or your mental health absences are going up, you'd feel a bit like, well, nothing's going to fix it. None of this stuff works. I don't know what the problem is. That's why I say you need to bring in a consultant who can look at the whole pie, the whole pie, and say, well, yeah, the, the the apps and the the classes, the yoga, the mental health awareness days, all of that is great. It just forms one small part of the solution. It is not the entire the whole shebang. Plan. You know, um, I know that a lot of organisations out there have put in as much work and as much. <laughs> pound dollars they could possibly put in I think that some of it was a bit misguided I mm-hmm. think they put money in things that they just oh no this will probably work but they didn't really go deep on it so in the midst of all the money spent on smaller programs and smaller things it added up in the end you could have just invested in one larger transformational mm-hmm. thing exactly. that would have gone deeper with the work I think that's that's a shock for a lot of people to realize. We spent how much money on all this stuff and there's still no return on investment, at least not as high as we were expecting. But actually the research from the off, from the Deloitte research from 2018 it was, already said those were always going to be a smaller margin. The therapy of someone who's already struggling is two to one ratio. They're, they're already sick. <laughs> so they're not, you know, it, it's too late at that stage, if that makes sense, in terms of your return on investment. You get some, 
but it never compares to when you train a whole suite of managers on how to deal with some of this stuff, how to have conversations around it, how to performance manage how to when somebody's not well. Work, how making to you stick in the Those return on investment was always nine to one. Actually, some of them nine. were 11 so to one. Massive. Yeah, massive. So, but when you think about cost, and that was always the, an important point. When you think, how much is a nine to one going to cost me? Mm. How much is a two to one going to cost me? Massive difference in fun, clearly. Absolutely. And that's, not why, delusional. that's why I go back to the original question Do we still care? And to show me you care, show me the money. So, show me the money. Because yeah, because this is the thing. You know, when we were, we, uh, Obi and I have been running this business for years now. When we were initially dipping our toes in the water to see about, um, whether we could operate in a corporate space um, rather than going direct to consumers and we were taking advice from coaches and things. We were always told, you need to show the the numbers. You need to have the stats to prove that that you are a worthy investment. You need to be able to demonstrate our ROI. And that was really hard. Mm. But we've got that. And we have a stack of really good, well-respected, internationally acclaimed organizations, McKinsey, Gallup, Deloitte, saying, yeah, this is what this is what happens when you do the right investment. And we present that to to our stakeholders, to HR, to prospects, to CEOs and CFOs. And they still go, yeah, but it's a lot of money. Do you yeah. want to fix a problem or not? And it's... Well, I don't... You know what? I, there's another uh, perspective to take on, that when people come and tell you what to do, there's a natural instinct to disregard it. Yeah. Cutting right? off your so, nose to spite not, your face, right? Well, but you know how I always say people pay for pain, not vitamins, and it, it's a bit annoying because God, you don't like when I say it because it's like surely people can't be waiting until the damage is done. Okay, but that's kind of what we as humans do all the time. Yeah, we never go to the GP until that pain is now like, is that leg swollen now? Yeah, but when it was aching, we didn't go. Yeah. And when someone said, you didn't see a doctor about that, we still never listen to them mm-hmm. until we experience the pain and then it's time to go. I still think we need to allow for people to come to their own decision, which is why we support HR with collecting of data Absolutely. and how much did this sickness cost in? How much is the price of not doing anything about it? So you need to collect data that people can see it for themselves. But that... I think people just don't want to be told what to do anymore in Gaji. I think they just think, oh, whatever, you have heard it, I read it somewhere, it's on the news, I'm just, you know, too much. Like everywhere I go, everybody's just happening at me mm-hmm. about well-being and stuff and workplace well-being. Yeah. And, you know, people just need to just sort themselves out type yeah. thing. And I I still, I think that that's also adding to the fact that even with all this investment companies have invested in, uh-huh around well-being and stuff, you still have stats that says six out of ten people don't regularly discuss their well-being with their manager. So I'm still not going to talk to you about that. Mm-hmm. Even though you said my door is always open, come and talk to me about anything. Yeah, but I don't trust you. Yeah, exactly. So still, again, so it's like it's not well-being itself 
on its own is all the things that come with that. Mm-hmm. It's the, like you say, trust factor. It's the expertise. Once I've told you I need some help, how are you going to help me? So there's no point saying how are you and here's what I need, but you can't provide that for me or support me with that. I still think well-being is still misunderstood. It feels like it's more understood, but I still think that people are getting it mixed up. For that, for leaders, I still think it's a case of it's not directly impacting me. And look at then, we've all experienced some level of stress, mm-hmm. some level of anxiety, even low mood. It might not be depression, but low mood when something has happened or just a part in our life. But there's another part that doesn't allow us to relate to the fact that where other people need to sort themselves out. So there's still an understanding, unless they hate, and I've seen this several times, when a head of department or CEO, someone had experienced an almighty breakdown or burnout, their outlook to how their team and the rest of the organization goes and thinks about well-being is completely different. Yeah, because then we become missionaries. There we go, energized by it. So, for one thing, that's great for those people in the organizations whose leaders have experienced it so badly that they've come back fighting and saying, no, this is not going to happen to someone else. For the majority of people, that's not the case. We keep hiring people who seem a bit like they don't feel anything, which is not true. But the idea is we keep hiring people and leaders who appear to be so resilient, nothing, they're like bullets, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing gets through them. Mm-hmm. And that perpetuates this idea that it's not really a problem. People just need to get stronger suck and be proper and suck so it up. They, they so they focus we, on anything that talks about resilience building because the there problem we go. is the employee's ability to take life, to deal with and everyday that, life. Not And I will not, I cannot life. say that that's not true. I cannot say that people people ought to be able to sort themselves out. People ought to be able to build resilience because that takes it's their work. They must do it. It's their internal work to do. But some a lot of people can't do it without support. We assume that we just wake up one morning and just do resilience all day. That's not how that works. It takes family members and friends and support and a great boss for that to happen. So those people who recover from stress mm-hmm. or burnout or anxiety or depression or whatever thing had happened bereavement have recovered on the basis of who was surrounding them and who supported them Mm -hmm. someone without the support it's a long slog they might recover but it might take a hell of a long time which now brings me to our wonderful NHS yeah that is on its need now you might ask well if NHS is on its need I don't understand how could that impact it impacts everybody because we have 4.6 million people, referrals, like mental health services in England. I don't, I'm don't. i not talking about Wales or Scotland. England receives 4.6 million referrals, yeah. up from 22%. This was last November of 2023. This is last stats. Mm-hmm. Question, do we have 4.6 million people in attendance? No, because we haven't got people to see them. So they have more people waiting on wait lists. Because you can only take at least 1.5 million of them mm-hmm. at any one time. So we have a ballooning group of people just waiting for treatment. Yeah. 
Some people will access private health, which is great if an organization does that. But then that's the other thing. You're grateful for organizations for providing mental health services and support for you. That when they're now abusing you in a different way or toxicity, you almost tolerate it because they paid for the medical bills. <laughs> mm. Right? But I'm not really feeling, I'm just here for the, for the benefit. <laughs> I don't even know if you Not do tolerate I trust it, this place. I don't. I mean, well, the, the the whole idea think. of, um, well, quite quitting, and which is mm-hmm. actually just another term for, I'll just work my contracted yeah. hours, thanks. Um, it, it, that's because uh, you're the ones that aren't actually helping me. And actually, people mm-hmm. are, we are smarter than we used to be. We are able to see through things that are, um not genuine um so yeah. uh, when when organizations tell us you guys are so important to us you really matter and that is why we've invested x number of thousand x million in this support for you because your health matters yeah. but please can you get that report to me by the end of t- the day today yeah but i'm supposed to finish early to go and see my kids play i don't know what to tell you the client needs it by tomorrow morning. Uh, those two things don't go hand in hand. So I now know no, you genuinely don't care. And that kind of behavior keeps happening. And I'm not even blaming the manager who who says that kind of thing. We are under a hell of a lot of stress. E- expectations yeah. are higher than they ever have been. And we're not, we haven't evolved as a species to have um some kind of computer speed like brain that we can operate that much more efficiently that we can Mm. expect our productivity to have gone up exponentially in line with the expectation of the work demands on us. We haven't. So we end up working late. I can't lie. I can't say that I don't work late. I do. I absolutely Mm -hmm. adore my job though. So I don't mind it, but and it's my own business. I'm the I'm the boss. I'm the one who's working me like a a dog at times. But we've all done it. How? When was the yeah. last time you went on holiday and left your work phone or your laptop completely untouched? Because you should. No, for a never. week. Never I, mind I, a holiday. I, I, a weekend. A weekend. After just a week. Um, I. I have to say, I don't know, when I did work for an organization, I never did, because you wouldn't really take that patient stuff, so you wouldn't, so it was almost like mm-hmm. built in, if that makes sense, that you wouldn't, you could technically log in, but you're not supposed to, and you can know, because it's like patient stuff, so if someone in by the pool saw someone's name, <laughs> you know what I mean? Ooh, I so didn't know he was so having think, that problem. Yeah, so it almost drilled into our head, that we couldn't do that, so we were turned off quite quickly Mm -hmm. now since running the business and running our business now it's like okay nobody actually like i said i'm my own boss so nobody told me when um but i am i'm going on holiday in a minute in a few in a few days and i'm going to go with my laptop yeah i don't (laughs) go anywhere without it so i can't go anywhere without it because it's helpful for for, for that just for me i find that's different because then if i work for somebody um, exactly who's telling me to do it because i only do it when exactly. i want to do it but exactly it's majority of us majority about. of us are just checking our phones in the evenings in the toilets uh, you know uh, yeah. we we don't <laughs> we don't really fully 
disengage from the workplace and the expectations for significant enough periods of time. And the impact that this is having, not just on us, but the role modeling that we're doing for the younger generation uh, is so damaging, isn't it? It's really, really bad, the state of mental health for children and young people in this country. Yeah. You you found some stats, though. Yeah, it's gone up. So we have mental health of children and young people in England. So in 2023, uh, one in five children and young persons aged 8 to 25 had a probable mental disorder. 20%. Yes. And interesting, we're talking about secondary mental health. We're not learning disabilities, autism, that kind of thing. So it would, in other words, it requires a whole department to support that young person. So say that again. So, so you're talking not, about things that have been so acquired, things like, not things yeah, that they're acquired. born with. No. Good. So it's right. not a health. Just to be clear. It's not like a health situation. Now, for example, autism, I mean that they didn't know and then they're now on the wait list yeah. and then eventually got seen, but they were like five years older mm-hmm. by the time they actually got seen. But that would have created a lot number of mental health issues and stress in that family that had made it even worse than if they probably got diagnosed five years ago, for example. Well, but yeah. it's the idea called probable, so they're still under investigation technically, if you think about it. And then there were like eight to sixteen year olds. Uh-huh. Um the the disorder was similar for boys and girls, but then by the time they get to age seventeen to twenty five the rate is twice as high for young women. Hmm. So there's, that could also do with period and th- th- something might be going on there as well. But it's interesting that they're similar within the age of 8 to 16, boys and girls, same rate. When it gets about 70, 25, the one for girls shoot up. So we've got something they need to be thinking about what's happening there. But one of the things I wanted to share was that if you notice young people aged 8 to 25, and the support for them is less. We, I assume they had more of them, but they're overworked. So there's too many people to be seen. And the classic example, one of our friends um, messaged me sometime last year in July. I remember July because I remember being on holiday when she messaged me, saying that her next-door neighbor's child has had a lot of problems, seemed suicidal, mm. seemed very depressed, but he was 26, so he's just over the cutoff mark for this, right? Mm-hmm. And he's been that way for the last two or three years. So he was, in effect, a young person based on that category. And they, they didn't know what to do and they needed some help. So I did say, okay, well, give them my number to ring me. They want to have questions, blah, blah, blah. But this 26-year-old was reluctant to go for help, right? Mm-hmm. So eventually, this parent probably got worried about last month or so, and then they reached out. And what they described is their child who'd been clearly not coping very well, um, stuck at a job, didn't even last a week in the job, very intelligent person, graduated from university, and this is where it all started. He was one of the um, the ones who graduated during lockdown. Okay. So where you're like, they really, you know, they really didn't see anybody. Yeah. But interesting, I think the point I'm trying to make now He's 26. He's refusing treatment. 
He doesn't think that he's just more like nobody can help me. Mm. And there's nothing in Gazi the parents, GP, anybody can do. Absolutely. So when somebody is on a free fall, they don't have the capacity, technically, limited capacity in deciding what's right or best for them. But there's nothing that their parent can do. There's nothing a GP is like if he's refusing. And there are too many people on the wait list who want treatment for them to be worried about this 26-year-old. So where we're just waiting for this problem to escalate. Uh, uh, let me let me before anybody does anything about. But he's not at work. Because if he was at work, then perhaps there will be some level of you're not going to do your job well if you're not looking after yourself. Because there's a level of I wonder how much support he would have gotten if he really stayed in the job. But he couldn't even be in the job because he was already in a free fall by the time he got this job. Quite sad, actually. I feel really and obviously worried for the parent, which the only thing I could recommend to this parent was you both need to go and get your own therapy to manage how to manage yourself and manage this person, this adult in your house, right? And then how to have communication around well-being and anxiety and self-care and mental health that allows perhaps this young person to get back into the conversation. Hmm. But there's nothing they can do about it. Well, I know that from my own personal experience. You regular listeners will know that, um, you know, I, I was burnt out myself and I um, sp- spent a year and a half recovering from it. I promise you there wasn't a day where I thought that the problems I had were fixable. I didn't think it was a problem. I just thought, I was a problem. And so I completely understand why he doesn't want to seek help. I didn't want to seek help. I was forced into seeking help because (laughs) my husband had to hold my hand while we waited for the doctor. Or I was just looking at the door wanting to run out because I was going to be embarrassed. So it's so, uh, to me, that's very clear, which is why companies need to focus on pro prevention, proaction, not yeah. treatment. And these people, yeah. these twenty six year olds, these are your. This is your workforce. These eighteen year olds, they're your future workforce. And if we don't get this right, can you imagine what Britain's economy will be like in twenty years? It well, I I mean, we just need to do something. We have a moral and a fiscal responsibility to do something absolutely yeah so what can we do then oops i mean the people who listen to this podcast we we know we are for a large part preaching to the choir you guys are awesome you guys understand there's an issue you guys are also scratching your heads thinking i don't know how to get through to them how can they how can they persuade oops how can, so thank you, and by the way, thank you for those of you listening and thinking, oh my God, what Obi and Ngaji on today. <laughs> um, it's just one of those, we're just talking about it, like we're just, so we're just, it's all hanging out, we're just letting it come out as it comes. So if you want to add to this conversation, please DM us on LinkedIn or something. We'll be happy to carry on this conversation with we'd other people. To. I think it would have been great. I know, yeah, we'd love to. So just putting that aside. Now, how can we get everybody back on the table? And I don't know, I think everybody, everybody, yeah, sure, well, everybody. We mean, how do we and, get 
Well, yeah, you're right. There's two. There's two. Yeah, it is everybody. Wait, first of all, how do we get the people who sign off the checks and allow us to do our jobs the way we know they need to be done? And then how do we get the employees who need the support to engage with the support on offer? So what I'm going to say is the next episode we're doing, so keep an eye out on it, because we're going to break down even more about how effective your company's well-being strategy is, because that gives an idea of who who belongs, whose staff belong to what. But for the purpose of this episode, I want you to think about how you might collate, how you collate data, your relevant data, collecting them. Because a few times we've been to a few roundtables where we said, what is the sickness rate? And we've got senior HR looking at themselves, shaking their head, they don't know. They haven't checked it, they haven't looked at it. You must get familiar, super familiar with this number because it tells you where there's trend and where things are moving up and down and it allows you to dig deep into particular stories or particular situations. And you want to be thinking, how can we focus on the cause of the stress, or the root cause, not just necessarily here are all these sick people, people going off sick, but actually what is causing some of this situation? And then asking questions, being proactive to talk about it. Now, people don't necessarily want to talk about their health challenges all the time, but for the people who do, ask more questions. Ask how, what support they had in place at home. Ask how often, how long it took them to get an appointment. Just have conversation because you need to be able to build a story. Just like a story I told you about my friend saying, could you check on my neighbor's child who's 26? Those are important stories to tell because it tells you when somebody has gotten in free fall, they don't have the capacity to dig themselves out. And it has to usually get worse. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it's not a dire situation where this results in death. That's the only, that's the ultimate bit that everybody wants to avoid, right? So you want to keep an eye on what's the causing of it, but you want to collect the stories. You want to ask more questions. You want to keep an eye on complaints. Right, things that people are rumbling about. You want to keep an eye on your engagement levels and the survey. What is the survey actually measuring? Ask some specific questions, right? So you want to think about your hard numbers. How much is this sickness in the last, just like I told you about the NHS for the last December, how much did it cost? Did it cost the business for these people who were sick? For the long-term sickness, how long is this still costing them? How much of them were linked to some sort of mental health issue? That's a separate cost, right? What is the cost of you doing nothing or investing in this little bit here, little bit here? What is the overall cost? How much have you spent in the last three years on those kind of projects? And what has been the return of investment of those projects? Can you go back and ask? Usually the answer is probably not. Because if people are attending your one-day, half-day workshop here, one-hour webinar here, that's a lot of survey you're asking them to complete. Mm-hmm. And everybody can say, it was nice, it was good, it was helpful. But they can't tell you how they're going to use it or utilize it or take advantage of those. Mm. So I think it's about trying to get, do your data. The next, epi- the next episode of this podcast, no, not the next one, the one we in Angola are doing, so that's in two weeks' time. Two weeks. You will get the one around how effective it is. So make sure you tune into that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully that will give you an idea of whose task belongs to who, who should be measuring what, and how you can now start to convince your leaders more about getting more involved in not negative well-being, but culture of the organization. If you notice... It is well-being, but it's not really. The whole thing has been about attitude towards 
people, attitude towards how people engage in a, in a workplace, attitude towards who trust who trust leaders in the workplace when things aren't going well for an individual. If we're all happy, it wouldn't be a problem, would it? Mm, but it's 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 the three P's. It's your people. That's a given. How skilled are they? But it's mm-hmm. also your processes. Do they support positive mental well-being? Do they create psychological safety? And it's your policies. Do they empower your people to get help when they need it from whom they need it? People, yeah. processes, and policy. And you could add a fourth one, place. Place. Yeah. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very good with the alliteration. Place. What is the work environment like? Does the work environment, is it is it conducive to engagement? Is it conducive to positive working um, well-being? Simple as that, because it might not be. So, yeah, I'm going to coin that. That's mine now. You can't have that. You can borrow it, but it is mine. People, oh, process, policy, oh my and God. place. All right? Okay. Brilliant. Well done. Oh, my God. I get it a long episode. This was not the plan, guys. This was not how we started off this conversation. Yeah, but we say what But I'm not said. surprised we got there. Yeah, I'm not surprised we got there. So, in terms of wrapping up, we just think, well, I think people still care. I still think that they haven't really understood it as much and we're focused on the wrong thing. I think that people need to be focused more around the strategies, focused more on stories, focused more on the numbers and focused more on the cost. Get calculator and start calculating stuff, man. Because that's the thing that you're going to need most to persuade senior leaders to at least put that in the budget or factor it in, especially when you've got a new budget um, um, financial year coming up again. So... That's what I wanted to say there. That's my summary. That's what I'm getting out of today's um, episode. What about you, Ngozi? What's your key takeaway or key key insight? Takeaway or insight is it's more of a plea. If you are in a people leadership position, know this. It is not your job to fix the company's well-being woes. It isn't. It is your job to make sure that the company is doing what they are supposed to do. When you know that it is under-investing, either in finance or resources or time, if you know that, it is your job to convince the people, the powers that be, that this is counterproductive for the entire organization. And you have to keep being prepared to to persuade, to influence and to insist on what is right that is your job i appreciate that so i'm gonna say if i want to carry on the conversation please do yeah reach out um please dm me dm in garden linkedin just to say oh, i agree with you on that or i disagree wholeheartedly you're wrong on what you two had to say <laughs> <laughs> because i think honestly i wish there were more people talking this call yeah. we should probably do this with more guests nice to have like six of people around the table anyway so thank you so much for listening to us today and hearing our you know february music and we'll catch you in two weeks where you will take away some lessons to make sure that your company has an effective 
well-being strategy, right? See you next time. Bye-bye, Rebels. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.